am Usher Leomund, and welcome to the Spindrift Podcast. The Spindrift describes the spray of water that a strong gust of wind can blow from the top of a wave. Here in the Spindrift, we talk about the Spindrift from the Ocean of Ideas. There are really no bounds to what might be talked about. The goal is to just unearth new perspectives and inspire curiosity. On this week's episode, I talk about quantum computing and cryptography. Yeah, some pretty curious subjects. Let us begin. The field of quantum computing has just recently had a bit of a jolt. This month, IBM announced their plan for future development of their quantum computer. And in the plan, they gave actual time frames. And the times, quite frankly, came as a bit of a surprise because quantum computing is still an extremely experimental field right now. And that is what made attaching specific years to their projected advancements really quite um, impressive. As reported by Science Magazine, IBM projects that they will have developed a 127-qubit quantum computer by 2021, a 433-qubit one by 2022, and a 1,000-qubit quantum computer by 2023. And those years, that's not that far away. Those numbers are rather exciting because the current size of quantum computers sits well below 100 qubits. Google has developed a 53 qubit quantum computer, and IBM's most recent iteration operates with 65 qubits. That is what makes seeing a 127 qubit quantum computer by next year, next year, really impressive. All right, so there's the headline. IBM has set some big goals for itself in terms of quantum computing development. But now that begs the question, what exactly is quantum computing, and how does it work? And while we're at it, why does it matter? (laughs) Now let's start with what it is. Quantum computing is a developing field that will eventually serve as an alternative to, and eventually replacement of, the conventional forms of computers that we're used to. The likelihood of modern, like just everyday people needing a quantum computer anytime soon is extremely low. So I wouldn't expect quantum computers to enter a household for decades, maybe centuries. But as far as the larger use of them by companies or larger organizations that are working on extremely theoretical problems, there, there could definitely be applications there. Quantum computers are much faster than the computers that we are used to today. Oh, and in in case, just to clarify, in case that the term quantum computer has you a bit doubtful, or maybe you're just thinking it sounds like something that would only exist in the minds of science fiction writers, let me settle that question right now. Quantum computers are not just science fiction. There are actual functioning quantum computers in existence. While you may not have ever seen one before, they are real. They're just highly experimental devices being developed in very tightly controlled environments. And I'm talking quantum computers sometimes have to be cooled down to close to absolute zero in order to operate. Yeah, most people don't have that sort of refrigeration capability just on hand. (laughs) They're very specialized development projects. So there's the general idea. You kind of gather what a quantum computer is. On the most basic level, it's just a really fast computer. To give you a better idea of how they do what they do, we now need to take a look at how they function. And to do that, I think it will be useful to first take a look at today's computers. And 
you're probably using a modern computer right now. In fact, to access this podcast, you might have had to use a computer. The way that computers work today is all based on electricity. Data is processed by sending pulses of electricity through wires or by sending pulses of electromagnetic waves through the air. That's how data transfer works. As far as processing goes, you've got a big circuit board inside of your computer that just sends pulses of electricity from one place to another and processes it in a meaningful way so that way it can be stored on a hard drive. And that's how the data processing and functioning of a computer is kind of in, in its most basic level. That's kind of how it works. The way that we make those pulses of electricity have some sort of meaning is that we all agree on what a specific pulse pattern means. Now, the, that's the fundamental principle of modern computing. When sending out data, either there is electricity or there is not electricity. And the timing of that, yes, there is electricity or no, 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 there is no electricity. That's how data transfer works. Either the electricity is on or it is off. Kind of like if you walked into a room um, and you were just flipping the lights on and off. If if you and your friend had agreed that like two ons in a row represents a yes, whereas you agreed that a one on and then a two second interval of no light was an off. If a on off was no and on on was yes, that's kind of the same idea, except we've standardized this. And most people don't have to worry about knowing which pattern is what. That's all handled by the computer and the protocols that are all put into place beforehand. And this, my friends, is where binary comes in. That binary is just the, the system that we use to assign meaning to those patterns. When you and your friend beforehand were agreeing that on-on was yes and on-off was no, that is binary. There are a lot of different systems of binary that attach meaning to different pulse patterns, but they all essentially do the same thing. Now let's get into some of the terminology behind this. In binary, we have the pulse. It's either on or it's off. And that opportunity there, on or off, is what is called a bit. So you could have four bits in a series, for example, and in each bit there's either electricity or there is no electricity. If there is, We'll call that a 1. That's on. If there is no electricity, we'll call that a 0. That's off. Grouping those patterns of bits is a system of binary. Now, everything that we have talked about so far has been in terms of two states, on or off. And that has kind of been dictated by using wires to connect computers. We either send electricity or we not, so we have two states on or off, that's how we store our data. And that's how all the processing power of modern computers is based off of. It's based off of the binary system, one or zero. On, off, off, on, off, 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 on, you get the idea, that's what happens in wires. Quantum computers, however, have a third option, a third state. The quantum computer uses electrons or photons in their data processing. The particle is the thing that we are going to pull meaning from. And in the tradition of computing, that particle is what has been termed a qubit. And that's that word is a combination of the words quantum and bit. We're using the properties of atoms in elementary particles, which the word quantum, that's where that comes from, with 
the word bit. We're using them in the context of computing, so let's use the word bit. We get qubit. Data is collected from the particle regarding the particle's state. According to extremetech.com, this data comes from each of the particle's three axes, x, y, and z. I'm sure you're familiar with that sort of coordinate system. Now, once that information has been collected, it's processed, allowing us to decide if the particle is oriented one way, which we'll call a 1, or oriented another way, which we'll call a 0. But before we can make that determination, however, we, we don't actually know if the particle will be in a state 1 or in state 0. And the cool thing about that is that we can make a guess based off of certain probabilities as to what state the particle actually is in. And when our data processing is still in that probability stage, when we don't know, we say that the particle is in a state of uncertainty or superposition. The qubit is 0 and 1, which is kind of weird. So now you can see that in quantum computing, there's a third state. Now, the, the intricacies of quantum computing are wildly interesting to me, but I'm not going to pretend that I have come even close to completely understanding it. But I hope I've kind of conveyed to you the general idea. The concept of three states in a quantum computer is what will allow quantum computers to process a greater amount of data in a much smaller window of time. Simply put, they will be faster. And that speed is what will allow quantum computers to do amazing things like run simulations on processes that are currently straining today's supercomputers. They're really pushing things to the edge, and those processes might include weather forecasting or exploding stars, all these, these wildly complicated processes that require a lot of information. Quantum computers will be able to do those simulations a lot more efficiently, a lot quicker, and in a way that we can actually do the simulations and pull some meaning from them and learn. Another key capability of quantum computers is the ability to do cryptographic calculations. Now, cryptography is kind of the study of how to encode data. Um, I know I've, I, <laughs> I've, I've had a bit of experience with coming up with ways to encode information. One that you'll commonly see is to put you know, text in, in binary forms, zeros and ones. It's not really readable by just any person walking up to it. You have to use a system, like let's say you use the, the ASCII system of binary, and you can assign a certain number of zeros and ones to the letter A, and then you can convert that all to readable text. Cryptography is the study of encoding information. And with modern computers, we're able to, to do some really strong encryption as far as when compared to the computing power of a human doing mathematical calculations on paper a computer can do them a whole lot quicker so if you've ever decrypted a note from your friend it probably took a few minutes but in terms of the internet we're talking encoding entire documents in seconds milliseconds i mean we're doing it really quickly and large volumes of it. Every time you log in to order something from your favorite online shopping store, you look up at the the, the URL. There's probably, well, okay, if there isn't, <laughs> you might want to go to a different online retailer, but there should be a, a lock up there showing that the all the communication that you're doing with the store is encrypted. It's, it's done using HTTPS and that 
stands for Hypertext Transport Protocol, but with SSL encryption. Won't get into that, but basically all the information that you're sending to the retailer has been obscured in a way that someone intercepting the traffic won't be able to read it. It'll just be gobbledygook. They won't be able to figure out what's being sent, and that's what protects all of your personal information, like your credit card number or your name or a birthday. But in terms of internet traffic, there's a lot of stuff that people want secured and kept private. With quantum computers, though, they are able to kind of turn modern encryption a bit on its head. The strength of modern cryptography is based on the processing speed of computers, because in a nutshell, a computer is able to decrypt something by kind of making guesses as to what the encryption encrypted message might actually mean. When we find out we've done the right guess, we've encrypted successfully, and hey, good to go. But making those guesses is a very important part of decrypting something. And so the number of guesses that a computer can make in a certain amount of time limits how quickly that it's able to decrypt something. And all of our modern encryption stuff, it hinges upon our computers not being quick enough to make enough guesses in a reasonable amount of time to decrypt something. While it's theoretically possible for everything to be decrypted at the, the, the level of complexity with current encryption algorithms and the speed of modern computers, it's not going to happen within a century. It'll take hundreds of years to actually stumble across the correct meaning. And that is what makes our current encryption methods secure. With quantum computers, though, they're going to be fast. And so the number of guesses that they're going to be able to make is going to be a whole lot more. And they're going to kind of disrupt current encryption methods, potentially making it possible to unencrypt information that people don't really want exposed. And that's why countries across the globe are in a bit of a race right now to develop the best quantum computer, because, well, they don't want someone else to do it first. So there you have it, quantum computers. We can expect big things from them in the next three years, especially when it comes to IBM. All right, earlier, encryption came up. And I think that I, I want to talk a bit about encryption now that that kind of was brought into the conversation when talking about quantum computers. There, I'm quite interested in encryption. It's pretty neat. There's a lot of math involved, which is something that I, I like a lot. And also, it's just kind of, I don't know, fun being able to encode something. I've got a number of these books. They're, I guess, an ology book series. They've got a number of them. They've got, okay, how do I describe this book? They're really neat. They're different books in the series that are all focused on a different topic. One of them is called Pirateology. And if you can imagine, it's a book all about pirates. And so... The books are really neat in that they usually have pockets with different messages in them or really interesting pictures. It's really a multimedia book, and I've got a couple of them. I've had one on Egyptology. It's all about ancient Egypt, one about pirates, and another one called Spyology. And the Spyology book is the one that I want to talk about now. That one, it had all kinds of information about how to be a spy, and that, that includes you know disguises or how to how to talk a certain way, or how to disappear into a crowd, how to 
effectively move around without people knowing. But the, the part that really interested me in that book was all the, the cryptography. It had different ways that you could encode messages, whether it be with uh, like the Caesar cipher. That one is a relatively widely known cipher. Basically what it is, is you take the alphabet, A through Z, and then you take another alphabet and you just shift it a letter or two over. The number is the number that characterizes the cipher. So, okay, that was a bit confusing and obscure. Let's, let's root that in some concrete examples. Let's pretend that the letter A, if I write the word apple, if I understand that this shift, this um, alphabet shift is going to have a shift of two letters. So every A is now going to become a C. Every P is going to become an R. Every L is going to become an N. Every E is going to become a G. You get the idea. So when you translate the word apple in, into a, a word on the page... All right, hold on. I got to do this on paper real quick. <laughs> okay. So if I were to use a shift of two... And using the, the Caesar cipher, Apple, A-P-P-L-E, becomes C-R-R-N-G, which someone reading that, it doesn't really have any meaning. You would kind of think that doesn't look right. That's not a word that I understand. And so you have to figure out a way to attach meaning to that, to decrypt it. Now, if you figured out that the Caesar cipher was going to be used, was being used on that, and you could figure out, okay it's going to be a shift of two, then you could reverse that and bring it back to Apple. And whoever you're wanting to send the message to is going to have that two number, the, the number of letters that you're shifting, and that is the decryption key, essentially. That sort of thing has always interested me a lot. Now, there are a number of different decryption methods. Like, for example, if we're looking at this Apple word that we just encrypted, C-R-R-N-G, something very telling about that word would be the R and the R. Now you've got two letters that are the exact same. When you're looking at this and you know it's encrypted, you're going to look for ways to, to reverse engineer that to get the actual message. And the two R's by each other are the same. So that, in your mind, is kind of sending off flares saying, okay, this might be a clue as to how this was encrypted. Then you're like, okay, what letters often come in doubles? Well, P is one, which would potentially lead you along the the right path to get to Apple. Another one would be M, another one would be N, another one would be L. So what you could do is you could see which one of these is, or you could see how far M is from R. M happens to be five letters behind R. So you could try shifting the alphabet five letters back for all the letters and assigning those to see if it works. Eh, it won't. And then you just you, you use techniques like that to kind of decrypt. Another one um, used in another encryption method would be uh, hashing. It's not so much direct encryption like this, but rather hashing is a lot is how a lot of password storage works. So a, a hashing algorithm, what it does is it takes a stream of text, like it takes all the text in a document, for instance. It cycles through it in uh, the in the hashing algorithm, and it spits out a long string of characters that maybe are just like a certain length long, let's say 25 characters or so. But that string of characters, the 25 characters, are unique to the document. So if you were to, instead of the one document that you're putting through it, you put a different one through it, it'll spit out a different stream of 25 characters. And so 
as far as passwords go, what they do is they don't actually store a plain text password. They store a hash that's unique to the password you use. As far as breaking passwords, what becomes the, the essential task with that is that a computer needs to tie a hash to a plain text input. And if you can match a hash with the text, then you've uncovered the password. So that's why in order to get into someone's account using a password, people have large tables of words associated with their hash. And so if you know the hashes that are being stored in a computer, then you can identify the password that the person is using. And that's where the, the quantum computer um, is, is of benefit to decryption methods because you can generate a whole lot more hashes with a quantum computer. Or even further still, if you can find text, multiple different types of text that produce the same hash, that's a big no-no in terms of encryption, then you've, you've invalidated that encryption technique. That hashing algorithm is no longer strong enough to be used. And now we've done that as, as computing has advanced and we've gotten quicker at that. We've had to retire different encryption algorithms. But anyway, that was a bit off topic. I was talking about my own personal experience. So there are a lot of fun encryption or a lot of cool ciphers. Another pretty fun encryption method is the pig pin cipher. It's real easy to do. You just basically make a, a, a tic-tac-toe pattern and you put letters in it, and then you make another tic-tac-toe pattern, put the more letters in the in that one. So like the first one has nine boxes, so you've got A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I in that one. And then in the next tic-tac-toe pattern, you've got the next nine letters, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R. And then you make two X's after that, and then you, you put the remaining eight letters in those spots. And now, um, you just you look at the shape surrounding the letter, like for instance, and we're looking at the first tic-tac-toe pattern for A is in the upper left-hand corner. So you've got kind of a, a backwards L. That's the shape that it's in. So all of a sudden, on your paper, you can write a backwards capital L, and that becomes A. B is right next to the, the A. So that one will be like a capital U, a box, squared off U, very square corners. But then you can use that box for the B. And that, that that's the pig pin cipher. That one's pretty fun. It's very symbolic, but it's pretty straightforward and easy to recognize. So as far as top confidentiality, I wouldn't recommend using that one, but it's pretty fun. And if you're familiar with programming, you can get pretty, uh, you can get a bit more sophisticated with that and not have to rely on doing hand calculations. You can just have a computer process some information for you. And that's, that's fun too. That really, it's a bit empowering because now all of a sudden you can encrypt large documents in, a, in like no time at all. That that gets fun. That's biology book. I don't know if it was really the, the my first introduction to it, but it definitely spurred on my fascination with cryptography. And then, you know, as I continue to do research in cryptography, you start to realize the, the sort of math that goes behind a lot of the encryption algorithms and things, and that's that's some pretty interesting stuff, too. That might warrant further investigation in a later podcast. I remember, I, I believe I was in fifth grade. There was uh, a week we had off from school due to weather, 
So how I occupied my time was I invented my own cipher. And now what I did on that one, I won't give you the specifics, you know. <laughs> but what I did is I, I, I encrypted text three times using three different methods. So I would change the text, the original text, once, then take the modified text and encrypt it using a different system, and then take that information and encrypt it a third time using a third system. And so when I got done, it ended up that the original message looked completely different in a totally new form in the last message. And that was fun. I did it all by hand, though. And what <laughs> I, I have a, a, a little notebook of graph paper. And the way I did it is I, I used the graph paper to help keep everything organized. But what it started as like maybe a paragraph of information in the end ended up looking like three pages or so of information. And that 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 feeling that I had totally and completely messed up what I had originally written felt pretty good. I remember chasing down my brother, having him try to get to decrypt it. I don't think he was too motivated. I ended up giving him hints in my desire to just want him to figure it out. But yeah, that was, that was, that was fun. It, it kept me busy during that time. Also in the, the, in the spyology book, a, a while back, I guess, when I was, I don't know, must have been in elementary school, I was working through it and I actually wrote a letter to myself in, I, I think it was the uh, pig pen cipher, wrote that, and then I, I hid it in one of the pages. As, as I told you before, the book has a lot of pockets in it and un things you can fold out. So the, the pages themselves were actually like one big sheet, but folded in half and then bound. So what you could do is you could kind of open up each page, kind of hard to describe. But if you, if you like, okay, you lay the book down, you flip a page open, so that way it's perpendicular to the table. And you kind of you push down, and that would mean the two halves of our folded sheet would split in half, and there was a space in between each page of the book. And so what I did was I wrote a letter, I encrypted it, and I folded it and slid it into one of the pages, closed the book, and promised myself I wouldn't open the letter for five or six years. And I actually, this past summer, I opened the letter, and it was um, less than thrilling. As I remembered, I remembered I wrote it, and I was kind of hoping I wrote, I don't know, something interesting in the letter. Oh, I didn't. What I did was I, I basically said, um, if you're stuck, and by stuck I meant solving something in the book itself, I just said, yeah, look in the, the, back, the back cover of the book. There's a hint there. I didn't say what the hint was, so it was less than thrilling. I was kind of bummed at that, but it was it was kind of fun. I appreciated the the sentiment. So I guess the moral there is, if I'm going to write a letter to myself for the future, I don't know. Talk about what I'm doing then, or what I want to tell my future self, not just about where to look in a book. I don't know. That was really disappointing. <laughs> There's also a another kind of clever way to hide information. I, I also noticed that musicians sometimes do this. What they'll do is um, in, in let's say, the inside cover of a CD, it, when they they don't really do that anymore, but sometimes artists will put all the lyrics in, the, in a little booklet in the front of a CD. Now, I, I believe Taylor Swift did this in one of hers, but 
one method of hiding information would be to just mix in capital letters to form a message. So you write out a page or a paragraph, and then you go through, you write down your secret message, and then you just read through your original document, pick out the letters that, that spell out your hidden message, and just make them capital. So that way someone reading through the, the message just thinks it's kind of weird capitalization, but if they take a moment to extract all of those capital letters, it'll actually spell out a message. I was perusing Spotify the other day, and there's a, an artist, Maddie Noyes, N-O-Y-E-S, and one of her first albums called Noyes Complaint. She actually did that. If you look at the tracks on on that, it's an EP, I guess. If you look at the tracks on that EP, she used capital letters to spell out her last name, N-O-Y-E-S. So the, the tracks are In My Mind, A Little Bit Wrong, Takes One to Love One, Rollin' Woo You, and Fallen Out of Love. If you look, they're all lowercase letters in all those titles, except for the letters N-O-S-Y-E. It's, it's not quite spelled in the right way, but it definitely spells out N-O-Y-E-S, which is her last name, at least her last name of her artist name. And that kind of pops up. I've noticed that on a number of CDs and EPs, and sometimes in those lyric books. It's kind of fun whenever um, people build in secret messages into things that they put out to the world. It's interesting. Now for the music update. This week, I have just one album that I'm looking out for, and that album is by Laney, and it's called Mama's Boy. I know the singles that have come off of the album have been really good, especially the ones Good Guys and You. That's Y-O-U with an exclamation point, so I should have more enthusiasm when I say You! That's the one. I've liked those a lot. I don't really remember when I first heard Good Guys, but I do remember that it hit me at a really good time and the song just really spoke to me. But yeah, the full album should be coming out this week. My music picks this week are as follows. Stars by Jamie featuring Lam C. That's Korean alternative. Time Like a Shining Star by Jamie. It's Korean ballad. Gotta Go by Sick K, Golden, PH1, and J Park. That's Korean R&B. And that song comes off of another album that was released by Higher Music called Blue Tape. I know it might have been last week or the week before I talked about Another album but that had just come out from Higher Music called Red Tape. And this one, I mean, it's just like within a month, two albums being released by this record label. And they've got a lot of my favorite Korean rap and R&B artists on it. So, yeah, it's been pretty neat. I'm really liking the whole CD, actually. Let's see, moving on to more songs. We Go by Stray Kids featuring Bang Chan, Chang Bin, and Han. That's Korean rap. Fallout by Unsecret American Cinematic. And Unsecret, a bit of a strange organization there. The Spotify bio of Unsecret is extremely vague and definitely builds upon a sense of mystery concerning who is behind the Unsecret group. I don't know how mysterious it is, but on the website, it lists a couple of artists that are supposedly a part of the Unsecret group. So I don't know if it is... Uh, like a single producer who makes these songs, or if it's it's if it's a collective of people, I'm not really sure. 
I do know that the songs that they make are very interesting. They're they're not really like pop songs. They're almost to the the level that they could be featured in movies or video games. So I've I've kind of come up with my own genre to to call them like American cinematic because they're very dramatic songs, but very catchy, very good. I, I like Unsecret. They've got a number of 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 good tunes that I've been enjoying. Moving on, Softly by Clairo. Not really sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Maybe Clairo? C-L-A-I-R-O. It's very much American indie. I, I, I like it. It's pretty good. Next, Me Before You, Orchestral. And that's by Craig Armstrong. It's or Amer- it's American cinematic. That is a mo- is a song actually from a movie, namely Me Before You, one of my favorite movies of all time. The next one is Spiegel im Spiegel, and that's by Arvo Pert. That's orchestral. Um, as far as the country of origin, not sure. I believe the artist is he was born in Estonia and then later moved around Europe, and I think. Ended back up in Estonia, but that song, Spiegel im Spiegel, is very good. Very calming. I, I heard it. It was in a movie I watched recently. And that song, I went to go and listen to the soundtrack, and it's most certainly a very good song. I, I found it very relaxing. And those are my picks for this week. And I want to offer you a bit of clarification. Earlier, when I was talking about binary, in my haste to explain something, I kind of glanced over what binary is, and in in doing so, I offered I, I left a lot open to confusion. So now I'm gonna clarify a bit more. Binary is a base two numbering system, whereas we're used to a base ten numbering system. So the base ten numbering system that we're used to has ten digits, while a binary numbering system only has two digits. And that's why it lends itself so easily to computing, because we're dealing with um, on or off. So if we can use the binary system, then we can attach a a pattern of pulses to a number value, whether it be a 1, a 2, a 3. So for instance, if you have just the number 0 in binary, that would be equal to 0. If you have just the value 1, that would be equal to 1. If you have a value 1, 0, moving from left to right, that would be equal to 2, because the, the second digit can go up to a value of 2. And then if you have a 1, 1, that would mean the first two places of a binary digit are filled, the first one being worth to up to 1, the second digit being up worth up to 2. So two ones means it's a 2 plus 1 equals 3, and so on and so forth. So that's that's why binary lends itself to computing. And then, now that we're able to give number values to these patterns of electric pulses, then we come up with standards to attach more meaning to the pulses. And then we get, um, in the context of text, actual text, there are a number of different standards that associate numbers with letters. For instance, there's the ASCII standard used to identify text values. And ASCII, as in the tradition of computing, 
is itself an initialism, and that's A-S-C-I-I, and it stands for the American Standard Code for Information Interchange. So that means that every character on the keyboard has a corresponding number value that could be stored in, in binary. For example, the capital A character corresponds to the number 65. And in binary, that would be 0, 1, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 1. Another pretty well-recognized one is the space character. Space character is associated with the decimal number 32, or in binary, 0, 0, 1, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0. Um, other standards for character-to-number associations include Unicode, which accommodate for a lot more characters because while ASCII just uses seven bits, um, that's the, the limit that's as big as a single character can be. Unicode, on the other hand, has different versions that can, for example, use up to 16 or even 32 bits. So there's a UTF-32 where each character can include up to 32 bits, and then there's a UTF-16 and so on. So if you have, the more bits you have, the more possible combinations that you can store and the more numbers that can be stored there. So you can have a whole lot more characters stored using Unicode. Those are the, the standards that are then associated with binary that allow for the storage of information in the form of text that we can obviously assign a lot of meaning to. So binary itself is not necessarily a standard. It is a system of numbering, and then standards are associated with binary in order to expand what sort of information we can store using the binary. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spindrift. If you want to listen to the music that I talked about, you can check out my Spotify profile, The Spindrift Podcast, and listen to the Spindrift Episode 16 playlist. For more episodes of The Spindrift, you can visit Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spinnaker Radio's home on the web, radio.unfspinnaker.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to keep up to date on everything to do with the Spoondrift, you can follow me on Twitter at SpoondriftPod, that's at SpoondriftPod, or on Instagram at SpoondriftPodcast. I hope to talk to you next week. I am Asher Lemond, and welcome to the Spoondrift Podcast. The word Spoondrift, be- the word Spoondrift, I am Asher Lemond. No.